Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus. It is good to be with you today. And before we get too far into the sermon, I want to peer through the bright lights and see if I can get a good look at some of your faces. I haven't seen some of you in a while, and we haven't seen each other much these days. But it's so good for those of you who are able to be here. It's good to see you. And for those of you who are at home, we miss you and we care for you and we long for the day when we can be together again and see each other face to face. We are in the beginning stages of a series that we're very excited about as we learn about our inabilities and we learn about how terrible we are and all the things that we're not able to do. It's a very uplifting way to begin the new year, and we thought we would start out at a low point so you would have something to look forward to later on in the year. Now, this series is actually intended to highlight the love and the grace of God for you, and one way that we can highlight that is by showing our need for God's love and for God's grace. Well, when I was seven years old, my brother and I went to the movies, as we were prone to do, and we saw an American space opera called Star Wars. In a galaxy far, far away. I can still remember the thrill I felt towards the end of the movie when I heard these words. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly. And I can still remember the shock I felt the first time I watched my favorite character sort of smile and pull up his sword, close his eyes, and lay down his life for his friends. That shock was followed by sorrow, anger, and confusion. And so far as I can tell, it's probably the first time in my life that I experienced what came to be known or has come to be known for many of us as the cycle of grief. Well, that story changed me. I felt the force, and somehow I knew that I was destined to become a desert prophet like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Until that happens, a suburban pastor is the next best thing. And so I'll be with you for a while. Whether it's Ben Kenobi or someone else, there is something about the stories of one person laying down their life for another. There's something about the stories of heroes who sacrifice themselves for others. It grabs our attention, it fires our imagination, and it stirs our hearts. According to Jesus, it does the same thing for the Father. He says in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. A couple of weeks ago, we heard Jesus explain how the Father loved the world and how he sent his only begotten Son into the world to save the world. Last week, we heard Jesus say that he came down from heaven not to do his will, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. And now today, we bring another piece of the puzzle in, and we hear Jesus say that the Father loves him because he does his Father's will. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression about the Father or about the Son. The Father and the Son already loved each other with an eternal love in eternity past. So it's not like the love that they feel for each other or the love they have for each other was conditional. 
or that the father only started to love Jesus after he started doing his father's will on earth. To put it in human terms, when the father saw Jesus fulfilling his mission and purpose in life and doing what he sent him to do, the father's heart swelled with pride and his love for the son deepened and increased. In this story, the father was glad to see his son carrying out the plans that they had formed together and fulfilling the mission that they had plotted together, a mission to save the world through self-giving love and sacrificial life. The father was happy to see his son doing the very thing that his son determined to do. The father looks at Jesus. He looks around heaven and he says, that a boy, that's my son. The Proverbs say, a wise son makes a glad father. I know that's true in my own life as I think about my sons and how proud I am of them. And I know it's true in your life as well as you look at your sons and your daughters and you see what they're doing and how they're growing and you take so much pride in all of their accomplishments, whether it's a finger painting that you stick up on the refrigerator as if it were a masterpiece, more of a Picasso perhaps than anything else, but it's their work and you're proud of them. The father was proud of his son Jesus. Well, in this series, No One Can, we've already heard that no one can see the kingdom of God, much less enter it, unless the Spirit enables him. We've also heard that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And then today, we see that no one can take Jesus' life. There's no unless there, unless we say, unless we say no one can take Jesus' life unless he allows them to do it. And let's see if that's, in fact, what happens. Look at verse 18. I want to draw our focus down to verse 18, just in light of our series. There are many other beautiful things in the passage we heard, but I want us to focus on two things here. The first part of what Jesus means by, no one takes my life from me. And then secondly, what he means by, I lay it down of my own accord. All throughout the Gospels, we see this recurring theme of people who get agitated with Jesus and they plot and scheme and try to find ways to trap him, find ways to stone him, find ways to excommunicate him, find ways to rid the earth of him. They want to get rid of him in some way. And they explain why. It's not because Jesus was walking around taunting people picking a fight, trying to get people to take him out. He wasn't trying to bait them into that sort of thing. It's not like he was wearing a big t-shirt that said, come and take it. No, the Jews said to Jesus, the reason we want to take you out is because you are a mere man, and yet you make yourself out to be God. And so out of their deep-seated convictions, out of their theology, out of their understanding of who God is and what man is, what they were hearing Jesus do was blaspheme, to speak evil and false things about God, and that disturbed them to the degree that they thought, we have got to get rid of this man. Now, on one hand, I admire their conviction and passion. We live in a day where people are sort of like, well, anything goes at least in the religious world. Oh, you believe that? All right, whatever. 
But in their day, it was like, oh, you, you believe that? Well, those are fighting words. And what are they doing? They, in their minds, are trying to defend the honor of God. They're trying to defend the dignity of God. And so to help protect God, they say, well, we got to get rid of this false prophet. They were doing what they understood the law of God to tell them to do. The trouble with them is that they had so much zeal and passion for God that it out actually outstripped their knowledge of God. And so they missed the point that Jesus is fulfilling the very scriptures they claim to be obeying and keeping. And so they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And they said, it's not because of any good works you've done, but for blasphemy. And so people are scandalized by Jesus and want to snuff him out because they thought he was saying false and evil things about God. Now, they failed to see the truth of Jesus, didn't they? They failed to see the grace and truth of Jesus, that he was both God and man, that he was the God-man, the Word made flesh. They saw his humanity, but they did not see his deity. And so throughout the story, they're seeking to arrest him, and off and on for three years, they keep bringing these threats to Jesus. And you might wonder, well, there were more of them than there were of Jesus and his disciples, so why didn't they just overpower them and take Jesus? What was holding them back? There are a lot of explanations we could give from a human point of view, like sometimes they were afraid of the crowds that were following Jesus. Sometimes they were afraid of how the Roman Empire might have reacted to their decision to take Jesus out. But John tells us that the actual overarching reason they didn't do this is because the hour of Jesus had not yet come. It was not his time. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So no matter how much they tried to arrest him or kill him or threaten him, they were not able to do it because Jesus was operating on his own time schedule and not on theirs. And they couldn't keep time with him. They couldn't get things to line up. And what this shows us is that Jesus was in charge of his own life and destiny. Until his hour came, until he decided it was the right time and the right place, they could only threaten his life, but they could never take his life from him. All of that changes when you come to John chapter 12. I'll give you the reference if you want to look over there. John 12, 27 and following. When the hour finally came, Jesus said... Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Are you kidding me? For this purpose I came into the world. No, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In other words, my son, it's all good. You got this. Keep doing what you're doing. And encouraged and emboldened by his father's thunderous voice, Jesus said, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It was death by crucifixion. So no wonder Jesus' soul was troubled. When he finally got down to it, where the rubber met the road, this is the hour for which he was born. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world is about to be slain in the world and by the world and for the world on the cross. 
soul is troubled not only because of the emotional and physical trauma that he will experience on the cross, but also because of the spiritual and relational trials that will come to him through the cross. Everything he has ever known, everything he has ever experienced is about to be tested to the max. When his hour came, Jesus entered the fray of sin and darkness. He entered the jaws of the dragon. He entered into death. He even entered into the darkness of exile as the Father turned the light of his face away from him. With all of that in mind, it takes very little imagination to hear Jesus praying and crying for the Father's help throughout the course of his life in the midst of all of the threats and trials, especially during his arrest beatings, crucifixion, and death. Imagine, if you will, a scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the cool darkness of the night, Jesus alone crying out to God in prayer. And what did he pray? Not my will, but thine, but certainly more than that. You can imagine Jesus praying psalms like this one from Psalm 31. I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Jesus knew people were plotting to take his life, but he kept insisting that no one could take his life. And yet, and yet, what do we see unfold in the story? Judas betrayed him. Soldiers arrested him. Followers abandoned him. Annas questioned him. Peter denied him. Caiaphas delivered him. Pilate questioned him. Soldiers flogged him, shamed him, slapped him, punched him. Pilate delivered him. Crowds mocked him. Soldiers pierced him. And the Father forsook him. The Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet truly when he said in Isaiah 53, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. A lamb that is led to the slaughter... Like a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In the end, Jesus was taken away by men, but they did not take away Jesus' life. He laid down his life and gave it to his father at the cross. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus laid down his life at the time and place ordained by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was no accident. It was no tragedy. It was no misfortune that Jesus gave up his life at the cross in that time and in that place. St. Augustine said in reflecting on the events of the crucifixion and what Jesus accomplished in laying down his life, he said, The devil jumped for joy when Christ died, and by the very death of Christ, 
the devil was overcome. He took, as it were, the bait in the mousetrap. The Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap. The bait which caught him was the death of the Lord. I don't know how many of you are active on Facebook, but I've noticed that some of our families are struggling with mice problems at home. I suggest you might put a cross in your attic or in the garage, and perhaps that will help. I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus says. It's easy to take this statement for granted. It's cliche. We've heard it so many times. We might assume that it's basic knowledge and acknowledged by all Christians everywhere. But the fact of the matter is that some professing Christians and many critics of the Christian faith have been sleeping on the glory of this truth, and they've overlooked the beauty of the gospel at this very point. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. Literally, he laid down his life from within himself. In other words, he laid down his life of his own free will. So long as we know Jesus died for us on the cross, why does it matter to us if we acknowledge that he freely and voluntarily laid down his life for us at the cross? Why does that little detail matter at all? Well, I'm glad you asked. It matters because without Jesus' own desire and own decision to lay down his life at the cross, we could end up with a very different kind of gospel, which would be no gospel at all. That's why this detail matters so much. Without Jesus' desire and decision to lay down his life, we are left with a story in which God the Father would be wide open to charges of child abuse. And that's exactly where critics of the Christian faith go because they misunderstand this important truth of the gospel. How in the world could God the Father be open to those charges? Well, I'll give you two examples. If the Father sent Jesus on a mission that required suffering and death, and it did, but Jesus was against that mission and resisted it, but he was forced to suffer and die anyway, then the Father would be rightly charged with abuse and abandonment of his son. Another example. If the father sent Jesus on a mission to the world out of some deep-seated anger, some pent-up frustration and rage that compelled him to take it out on someone so he could get some kind of relief, but it just happened to be Jesus because Jesus intervened and got in between a father who was blind with rage coming against the world that he had grown to hate. And he took it out on his son, Jesus. And Jesus absorbed all those angry blows. And Jesus took the rage and the anger of that father. The father would be rightly charged with coercive and capricious behavior. Now, I know that some of us have heard the gospel in that way. We have heard the story along those lines by well-intentioned pastors, and I confess that I am one of them. But that is not the gospel. What happened in the story? 
we have already noted many, many times in this series alone, much less how much more in the rest of our preaching, that the Father and Son were on the same page. They were on the same team and on the same mission for the life of the world. What motivated the Father and the Son to go on this redemptive mission? What motivated Jesus to become the hero of this story? What made the Father so proud of his Son? Was it anger? Was it rage? Was it a vindictive spirit? Was it a desire for retribution? No. God is love. The Father was motivated by his love for the Son. The Father was motivated by his love for the world. The Son was motivated by his love for the Father. The Son was motivated by his love for the world. Shall I remind you again? of the world's most famous scripture verse, that God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only begotten son into the world to save the world. John puts it this way in 1 John 4, in love the father sent his son to save the world so that we might live through him. The Father and the Son were not motivated by vengeance. They were not motivated by wrath. They were motivated by love. Love for you and you and you. Love for your neighbors. Love for strangers and aliens. Love for your enemies. Love for people nearby and far away throughout all space-time history. God loved the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit joined together on a mission to save the lost. Why? Because he loves sinners. Sadly, some folks, even in our tradition, have misrepresented this story. They've given off the vibe that the Father had this undying need to pour out his rage on the world, that he had this pent-up anger and wrath and he just had to unleash it on someone and it just happened to be Jesus and after he got it off of his chest got a few swings out he felt better about himself and he felt a little bit better about the world but again friends that is not the good news of the gospel especially for those of you who have lived through that sort of thing in your own families where that is the picture of a father that you have Father that is always scowling at you and angry with you and always upset with you and about to go off at any second. How could there be any good news in us telling you, oh, that's the way God the Father is as well, only he's bigger and more powerful and you can't do anything about it. You can't call the police on him. You can't get any help from him unless Jesus intervenes. You see the difficulties here. That sort of thing makes the Father makes it look like the father treated Jesus like a whipping boy, and it leaves a very bad impression of our father. 
The impression is that the father is abusive, coercive, vindictive, that he's mean, hateful, grumpy, angry. That is not how he describes himself. That is not what Jesus shows us about him. And so this might be a course correction for some of us today. The gospel reveals to us that it is the mutual love of the Father and the Son that fueled their mission for the life of the world. In their children's story, in the children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis explains these kinds of things in this way. He explains why the death of Christ and the voluntary, willing, free death of Christ is powerful and effective. In the story or the world of Narnia, no one could take Aslan's life, but Aslan laid it down of his own accord. He laid it down obediently to the eternal will of the emperor beyond the sea. He laid it down sacrificially in place of his friend, and he laid it down freely and willingly for the life of Narnia. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? When he took it up again, the children that followed him around asked Aslan how he did it. How did you take up your life again? How is it that you died and now you're alive? What happened? And he said, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. My friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus was the willing victim. And the deeper magic that drove him was love. The deeper magic is love. It's self-giving love, eternal and reciprocal love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit embodied in Jesus. The deep magic made flesh for the life of the world. And so when I say to you that we cannot overlook this detail of the gospel, I mean that it is a matter of life and death for us. It's a matter of grace and truth. It's a matter not just of theological precision, but it is a matter, it makes the difference between hope and despair. Jesus laid down his life voluntarily of his own accord, freely of his own free will. As he prayed in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The significance of Jesus' free will offering cannot be overstated. It's often overlooked, but it cannot be overstated. And to bring the point home to you and to drive it in for you, hear this. To put things in perspective, that in the Old Testament, God gave very specific instructions about the kinds of sacrifices he required worshipers to present before him. He also gave instructions about the kinds of sacrifices he prohibited and did not want. And he also gave instructions about the kinds of sacrifices he allowed. 
Well, in the Old Testament, when a worshiper drew near to God at the altar and at the temple, he was required to bring certain gifts and present certain offerings to the Lord. But beyond that, he was also allowed to bring a free will offering to God as well. And that offering was not required by the law. That offering was permitted by love. It was an offering that would grow or be born out of the heart of the worshiper. An offering that the worshiper said, I love God. I, I have gratitude in my heart for what he's done for me. There's thanksgiving and joy because of who the Lord is and how he's drawn me near to himself, how he's delivered me from Egypt and brought me to this place of hope and rest. And it was out of that that these offerings were made. Free will offerings were, in our, our language, and our words, they were just because I love you kind of offerings. And it's that kind of offering that Jesus is describing in John 10 when he says, I lay down my life of my own accord, of my own free will. They're also called peace offerings, not because they were intended to make peace with God or establish peace with God. They were peace offerings because they celebrated the peace that they already had with God through all of the other sacrifices. The celebration culminated in communion. The free will offerings were presented to the Lord with no strings attached and for no other reason other than gratitude and devotion that was born out of a person's heart and soul. What in the world does that have to do with John 10, 17, and 18? Here's what it has to do with it. The free will peace offering was the only sacrifice that worshipers were able and allowed to eat in the presence of God. What has Jesus been telling us in the Gospel of John? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You have no life in you. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How in the world could we do that, Jesus? Oh, by the way, I'm the free will offering, the peace offering that invites you to come, take, and eat. He invites us to draw near to his altar, to consume his flesh and blood, to come to his table in the presence of God in celebration of the peace that we have with God, the peace that we have with God because of the love that God has poured into the world through his son, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's come to this table now and eat and drink in the peace and rest that God offers us in the Lord Jesus. Let us pray together.